how at 50, all of these things that I would have never dreamed that, you know, could happen were happening to me. And that's when I was like, holy fuck. Like, you know, in AA, we have this expression, don't quit before the miracle. And like in the four, in my forties, I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. And then to think that, you know, at 50, it was completely different sort of thing. Today, my guest is Nick Wooster. Nick is the silver-haired, Kansas-born, Los Angeles resident whom no fashion week is complete without. A ubiquitous face of Paris, Milan, and New York, he's featured on Vanity Fair's international best dress list and has become a true icon of men's style in the digital age. If the name doesn't trip off your tongue, his image most certainly will resonate. And I have to say, I've admired Nick for a long time. So to get this time to chat and to hear about his journey, which as he explains, has not been linear, but it's been very interesting. Nick Wooster, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today on The Number. Hello, Darren. This is, so this is kind of bizarre because obviously I feel like I know you, but we've never met until 10 minutes ago. We had never met. The power of Instagram. <laughs> but it's lovely to meet you in person and you've just as lovely a, a vibe and an energy as I expected, which is always uh, a treat for me. Well, thank you. Uh, I think we should set the scene because obviously we are here in Los Angeles and I feel like the look of the Irish is not with us, but the weather is. It's the most heinous, <laughs> most non-Los Angeles day ever. Isn't it outrageous? It's crazy. I uh, know. Something else that I have to get out of the way, which is very important to me. You are like the king of the silver foxes. <laughs> oh. You and George Clooney. <laughs> well... Um, thank you. I mean, I don't, you know, I, the, what's so bizarre is that never in my life, I was always the young one. Like when I was a kid, I was always hanging out with older people and I was always the youngest one. And so to have the, those sort of roles reversed out of nowhere and, you know, and I did everything in my power to be dead by 30 <laughs> that, you know, it's like, fuck. <laughs> Okay, so, yeah. But I mean, you own it, it looks amazing. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm very excited to chat with you because <laughs> I've uh, researched and read up a lot about you and your career, and I've always found you quite fascinating. Um, anyone listening who follows you on socials, which has kind of been a massive kind of, um, I guess, created a whole new world for you, I'm assuming, which we're gonna talk about. There's a lot to Nick Wooster that we don't necessarily see in these lovely images. And it's always something that intrigues me. So I think we'll crunch the numbers. Uh, what's a meaningful number for you and your family? So take us back. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, so I'm the oldest of three boys. There are, there, you know, I grew up with two other brothers, a dad and a mom. So there were, so it's like one, three and five were numbers that always meant something to me because it's like, I'm the first, there's three boys and there's five in the family because five was also difficult for tables. Like we, we had our, my parents' best friend had two kids and so they were four and they could easily fit into a car, easily fit into a table. And we were like five. And I was always kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, we can't do anything right. Um, <laughs> Now I'd look back and think it's so funny. But um, so one, three and five just have always stuck into my mind. But then the other thing that, you know, is my birthday's on the 2nd of July. And so one, two, three and five are sort of like numbers that always. I feel like you're giving me your pin code. Well, I'm not. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not. Um, 
So, so are they, tell me about your, your childhood. I, mean, I know you grew up in the 60s in Kansas, and I was thinking about Kansas today. I was like, my only real reference point for Kansas is like Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in college when I actually realized that the Wizard of Oz, I've seen the Wizard of Oz every year as a kid, like whenever they show it at Easter or whenever, whenever it is they show it every year or they used to show it. You know, used to watch, I, but it never dawned on me <laughs> like I'm from the same state that she that Dorothy was from until somebody pointed it out, and I was like, "Oh, well, does that right. line? You ain't in Kansas now, Dorothy. You, you you ain't you aren't in Kansas anymore. That's it, <laughs> right? Um, again, I just it just kind of went over my head. Kansas was such an amazing place to be from, <laughs> but I'm so grateful that I don't live there now. Um, you know because. Okay, so if you're a gay kid in the 60s with parents who, you know, a father's a mechanic, a mom who stays home, and the oldest, you know, I was, I mean, clearly, I was a huge disappointment to them because I was not the ball-playing, tough guy, you know, son that most people would, especially in Salina, Salina, Kansas, would expect. I mean, I am grateful to my parents because at the end of the day, they always tried to reason with me. Just this idea of like, they didn't say I couldn't do things like I wanted to play with dolls or like play with the girls down the street and I wasn't interested in sports. And they were just like, you know, okay, if you wanna play with dolls, it's fine, but just do it at home. Like don't take it out because your life will become more difficult later. And I think that was like a very subtle way of just trying to protect me. And you know, mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I don't look at it today as like anything other than they were just looking out for me. I mean, it's so shocking when I think about what's gone on in the 60 years that I've been alive. We've gone from, you know, being gay to being against the law and a mental illness to gay marriage and marriage equality. We've gone from segregation to Barack Obama. Like, so many things have happened in my lifetime that were so shocking to believe that, like, how things used to be, but it wasn't that long ago. And so, you know, to think that, like, I'm sure that my parents could have never imagined that I could be happy or successful being gay, but yeah, here we are. Here we are. And you so know. what was, what age were you when you came out? 22. So, you know, I, I graduated from college in May of 1982 and I was, you know, 22 in July and I moved to New York in January of 1983. So I was 22 and a half. And in the very first month I lived in New York, I was like already plotting like, okay, I gotta find a girl that I can date because I really thought I was gonna lead this double life and that would be what I would do in New York. The second month, third month I lived in New York, I did something called EST, which is also known as Landmark Forum today. I've no idea what that is. Warner Earhart developed this kind of thing, this course that you took over the course of two weekends and it's like a seminar Pe people know what this is and it was like a big deal in the 70s and, and early 80s and in it out of it I came to I understood that like yeah I'm gay and it's totally okay and so that saved me a lot of brain damage me and probably a lot of other people brain damage to just understand that like no I wasn't going to need to lead a double life I was going to get to leave, lead my life and it would be, and so, you know, listen, I didn't just like immediately, you know, 
shoot out of the gate like, oh my God, I'm so gay, I'm so happy. You know, there was still probably a lot of shame attached to it, but at the same time, I didn't have to marry a woman and drag her through that kind of thing for the charade of like, you know, my whatever. Um, and you know, and I do know people who have done this, mm -hmm. you know, after me. But at the same time, I honestly believe, I mean, I don't know why I believe this, but like, just because it's me, that like 1960, because I was born in 1960, I feel like I know many more people who were older than me who are gay, who did things like marry women. But like for me going forward from the 60 on, more of us didn't do that kind of thing. And I think that was a real dividing line in terms of how, you know, the, but let's not forget the weekend that I moved to New York, in January of 1983, I think it was January 8th was the day I flew. On January 9th, the New York Times, I was staying with my aunt and uncle who lived in the city and they were, we were having breakfast and they were like, oh here, take the, the magazine section. And the magazine section was, the cover story was, a, they had just given a name to AIDS. <laughs> and I'm reading this and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is what I moved here for? This is, so, you know, so let's not forget that there was that little problem, mm -hmm. but, other than that, it was such an amazing moment because I sort of understood that like, oh my God, I've got an entire life ahead of me. And I'm just so grateful that like I was born when I was, that like I was able to do that. You said your parents were very like obviously insightful. They knew you were different. Um, when you officially kind of came out to them, was it a surprise and how did they react? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, yes, they acted surprised. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I think it's that surprising, um, you know, and I, I had the same reaction, by the way, and, you know, it's like, and I mean, I don't want to speak for my father who's so alive. My mother is not, but my, you know, it seemed that my mom was sort of better with it than my dad. And also I had a middle brother who's also no longer with us, who seemed to be better with it than my younger brother. But again, I, I'm sure that for everyone, it was just one of those things. But the other thing that I have to say is that like, it's so water under the bridge. I mean, yes, a lot of time has elapsed from that event of coming out, but like, it wasn't like a problem. You know, it wasn't like I couldn't go home for Christmas. It wasn't like my parents said, don't ever come home or, you know, we don't want to see you or we don't love you. There was never anything like that. But I do think that even in the early 80s, there was still a kind of like, <laughs> Well, do you know, I still think today there are some kids and, and you know, I think you've been very lucky, your, your situation and you acknowledge that and your, your timing of life. But it still hurts me to think that there are some kids, maybe not in Los Angeles or in London or Dublin or New York, but there are kids who are really struggling today coming to terms. And that's why I love hearing what you, you know, about your experience, because as more familiar and, you know, more open a society we are about being gay, there's still pockets that struggle. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, I mean, I mean, just to hear the things on the news that we're still talking about, the racism, the sort of the homophobia, just any, the any phobia of mm -hmm. any kind, to think that this is still going on, but it's going on. So you're right. I mean, I, I, I think the internet has to be the, probably the single biggest tool to really help a broader range of people than we were, than I was ever, or probably even you were yeah. ever given that, you know, because you at least understand that you're not alone. You're not alone. You know, you're not the only one who mm -hmm. thinks this way. I, I, believe me, in 19, in the, because 
I mean, I always knew I was gay. Like I didn't know obviously that I, what to call it and I didn't know what it meant, but I always knew that how I feel was different and that it was not okay, mm -hmm. not okay to talk about. And, um, you know, so it didn't occur to me until in high school. So of course I was very interested in psychology and classes like that because I wanted to learn about like, oh, can I change it? Can I, you know, can I fix it? Um, because I did, and I even took a class and asked the professor like, oh, you know, basically about conversion therapy. And he was like, and he was this gay guy. And I'm so grateful to him, and he was an asshole, but like I was super grateful to him that he was like, just don't even think about that. Like that is gonna be the worst thing in the world for you. And, and obviously it is the worst thing in the it world. It is the worst thing. Um, I mean, I didn't do anything like that, but. Um, but you did mention shame. You had a feeling of yeah, shame. Yeah. How did you deal with that? And like, was it something that kind of was a clear Drugs and you? alcohol. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I, I, I believe that I was born an addict or in the same way that I had a predisposition. So, you know, a few things fell into place and I was going to be an addict, whether I was gay or not. I mean, it's not because I'm gay that I was, that I am an, ad, an addict, but that's how I dealt with AIDS and the people around me dying. And that's how I dealt with things like shame of being gay. Because it wasn't until I started to get sober and I went into therapy. I finally got sober in 1995 when I was 35 years old. Way past the time that I should have gotten sober, but that's what it took for me. Um, and this therapist, you know, asked me, are you okay being gay? And at that point, you know, I'd been out for 13, 14 years. And I was like, of course I'm fine with it. But I sort of thought about it, and it was probably that I wasn't okay with it still. Um, because that's the thing, you can be living a fully out, happy life, but still carry a lot of shame. Right, right. And that's the kind of paradox there, isn't it? It's like until you deal with that shame, it's still there. Right. Buried away wherever you've left it. Right. But it, it takes root. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these, it's funny, I, I am not a, uh, I'm not against therapy, but I've not, I've felt like I've never had like amazing results in therapy. The, the handful of times that I've done it for, you know, more than one or two sessions. And I've done it when I, when I was in rehab, they said, you know, as part of your aftercare, you must be in therapy. And so I did, like I did it for a good two or three years. Um, and you know, it was, I mean, I'm glad that I did it, but it wasn't like I had this fully cathartic, oh my God, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, but what I, um, what that really was for me was taking direction and, and following it, you know, like get there, go to therapy. Okay, I did it. But for me, AA was the only thing that ever really like did. That was your therapy yeah. in a way. You know, what, what yeah. religion does for some people or, you know, therapy can do for others or, you know. I have to say I'm a big advocate of therapy. Um, and it was something that I first, I was going through a really tough breakup. Um, and kind of everything in my life was changing. And I remember I was like, I think I want, I want to talk to someone, just someone who doesn't know me, doesn't know the history, doesn't know the backstory, just independent. And I found this wonderful therapist who I really liked. I just connected with her. It was kind of like, I always say it's kind of like dating in a right. way you have oh, to get yeah. that chemistry. And you know, I've worked through lots of stuff with her and like, you know, important stuff to me. And I guess I'm probably privileged to be in a position that I was able to do it. But again, it has changed my perception on the world. Would I have been fine without it? Probably, but probably not as free. So I always say anybody who's considering therapy, I think you work out your body for the reasons that you work out your body. 
why wouldn't you kind of work out your mind? And now every now and again, I might do a session every six weeks or eight weeks, just touch base. Right, Just right. make sure. I don't know if it was Socrates or some person like that, but you know, mind, body, and spirit. I mean, you've yeah. got to sort of like address all three. And you know, if two, two are on, you know, are, and one's lacking, like, you know, the triangle's not gonna be equilateral. Like it's gonna be a wonky sort of thing. And so I agree, you know, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, and you know, you've got to work on yourself. You've got to work on your mind. I mean, for me, that means reading, meditation. You know, it's just important to sort of keep keep your mind busy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, my default is, you know, grinder or whatever else that can be a distraction. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like, it's also important to read a book every now and again. Tell me about a number that changed everything for you in your career when I turned 50 and it was the year 2010. And the reason without going into a long history of my career, like in my twenties and thirties, I, my career was on fire and it seemed like in spite of myself, in spite of my raging addiction, I always managed to get new, you know, better, higher paying, more high profile ish jobs for me. I was a buyer, you know, first at Barney's and at Bergdorf Goodman. Then I, got the opportunity to work at Calvin Klein when it was a very amazing time to work at Calvin Klein. And then I got to work in design at Ralph Lauren. And these were all kind of like dreams of mine in terms of either the company or the kind of thing that I wanted to do. And then I got sober, I left Ralph Lauren, and then I worked with a small designer and we had a five year, very amazing sort of partnership opportunity to work together. John Barlow is his name. And um, in the, spring of 2001 this is before 9-11 um you know the business the business had changed and it was this kind of thing that like listen we can't you know in order for me to keep going i can't keep like we we've got to stop working together because the business was sort of shrinking a bit and you know and it was also like a relationship that you just knew like the time was up it wasn't a bad thing we're still very close but it was just time to to stop and i thought at the time fine, I'll have another, get another, you know, it'll be no problem because I'd never had a problem getting a job. Then, you know, so the summer 2001, I like spent a lot of time on Fire Island and then started to talk to people around August of 2001. And then I was up for a sort of job and then 9-11 happened and I didn't get that job. They didn't hire anyone for that job. And I couldn't get a job for the next, basically next year, year and a few months. And it was a very, so I was like 41, 42 when this was going on. And I was like, fuck. So fast forward to, I did, I, I did, as we say in AA, I did the next right thing. I sort of moved to Miami. That was a hideous nightmare. <laughs> the next um, best thing I moved to Miami. <laughs> well, no, it was, a, I, I moved to, to Miami for a job. It was a hideous job, but you know, it's like I needed to work. I had to declare bankruptcy. I needed a job. I got a job. You know, I, I then got an opportunity to work to move to LA because I was like, I, okay, if this is the deal, like I want to move to LA because I had friends there and here. And I also just, you know, if it wasn't New York, it was going to be LA in terms of, mm -hmm. and I still believe that there's, a, those are the only two places in the United States I really want to live. And, um, and you know, and my, and what ended up happening in the six years that I lived here, and this was also in looking in hindsight was such an, an incredible moment for me because basically in those six years of living in LA, I was not making the kind of money that I had been making in New York. I was not living in a small studio apartment. 
driving a three series BMW, but like at the end of the day, I was like, okay, like I had kind of a great life. I had a really active AA life because the meetings out here are incredible and all kinds of amazing people. So I had an active social life. I, you know, and I was just like for the first time, okay with mm -hmm. where I was. Like it wasn't maybe what I would have scripted for myself, but like I was like, I'm good. You're on your path. So in the fall of 2009, I read in the, in, you know, whatever, a trade paper, either women's wear, well, I don't think there was business of fashion then, or if there was, I wasn't aware of it, in women's wear that the men's fashion director job at Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman, you know, was open. And so I talked to my sponsor and I said, listen, this was a job that when I was a buyer at Bergdorf's, I had asked them to be the men's fashion director and they were like, oh, no, no, we don't have that job. The store's too small, blah, blah, blah. And then... So it never, so what happened was I was living this life in LA and I, I thought, what the hell? It won't hurt to try because if it, if I try and I get it, holy fuck. But if I don't get it, I'm good. Like mm -hmm. I've got to, so I did. And it was a three month process of, and I got that job and I was like, really? Like, okay. And then it was kind of that moment. I, 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 it's just where stars were in alignment in a certain way. You know, like Scott Schumann had been doing the sartorialist for a couple of years. Tommy Tan had been, you know, street style photo photographer for like GQ and different things for a couple of years. So a couple of years in, I sort of came in as fresh meat is how I really <laughs> think about it. That, and, you know, and it was just like the right moment, the right time, Tumblr, this is all pre-Instagram, but it was blogs and Tumblr and like, for some reason, somehow, the silver hair, the whatever, tattoos like sort of hit a nerve. And because I guess I'm a regular guy, I'm not tall, I'm not a model, I'm not, it just, you know, it resonated with a lot of people. And so how at 50, all of these things that I would have never dreamed that, you know, could happen were happening to me. And that's when I was like, holy fuck. Like, you know, in AA, we have this expression, don't quit before the miracle. And like in the four, in my forties, I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. And then to think that, you know, at 50, it was completely different sort of thing. I love that. And I have a similar expression that I kind of live by. It's like the day you give up is the day you miss out. So it's the exact same sentiment, but the moral that I'm hearing from that story, and it's quite interesting is, um, there are a lot of people, and I think sometimes Instagram drives this, but it's like, you know, your twenties and thirties, you should be uber successful. And in your case, I'm hearing you kind of wear, right? But then it fell and you kind of started from scratch. So there's a lovely message in that. It's like at 50 was when you really started to come into your own, which right. I think will give a lot of people a lot of, um, a lot of comfort, you know, because there's so much pressure to be young, to be, you know, to be 25 and have 25 million followers and to be literally, you know, living your best life on a yacht in St. Bart's. But let's be honest, that's, that's not life. And even if that is your life, are they happy? We don't need right, to answer that right. question. <laughs> I mean, triangle of sadness. Like, I mean, you know, like I, if you are young and cute and you have 25 million followers and you're living your best life on a, in, God well bless. Well done you. Well done. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that really. But like at the end of the day, like if that's like, if you're doing that power to you, like that's mm -hmm. amazing. But the one thing that I do feel, and I'm going to say this and I don't mean to sound like an asshole, but like for me, I feel like I've earned this, <laughs> you know, like yes. it's just like, because believe me, <laughs> what had to go on, <laughs> 
all those years before now, you know, some of which was like great and some of which was not great. Um, I feel perfectly fine, you know, <laughs> taking that money, selling out, posting those things, you know, because it's like, somebody wants to pay me to do something, thank you, and I'm gonna do it. And you've earned your stripes. We will come back to your literal stripes that you're wearing today, but you've earned your stripes and you've had a career before Instagram and you'll have a career after Instagram. And I think that's a very important distinction. And um, when it comes to love, a little bit of a segue here, what's your number? Zero. Zero! <laughs> what? I'm so not interested. Have you ever been in love? So I've had four over one year relationships in my adult life, um, or my life. Um, but... So do you, do you envisage the rest of your life being single? Yes. I'm super happy being single. You know, I have, so one thing that I have are, I have really long friendships. Like I have a friend who's actually launching a book this week in Paris, but unfortunately I can't be at. Um, we went to college together, so we've known each other 45 some years. Um, and we talk on the phone virtually every day. Um, I love that. I have four really close 30 year plus friends who I also talk with on a very regular basis, if not daily. They all live in New York, I live here. Actually, one also lives here, or spends time here. Um, and then I have lots of, or I have a few, not lot, when I say lots, we're talking about a handful, a couple of people, three or four people, uh, that are in the sort of like 25 year group. And then, and I have a couple of friends that are like 10 or 12 years, and those are new friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I really prize and, you, know. you invest in your friendships. Yeah. Yeah. And right. I, I like that. I'm like that as well. And um, I feel we've kind of touched on some of this. We might go over it quickly, but what does age mean to you? And are there any ages in particular that were significant for you? And I think there are quite a few. <laughs> well, 35, which is the year that I got sober, but then I finally got sober. So um, I had tried in my, I had been <laughs> diagnosed and 12 stepped in my 20s to go to AA, which did not take because I was. There was no way I was going to stop at that point. Um, but at the age of 31 in 1991, I understood that like I needed to get sober, that my life was falling apart. And I, and I knew, I mean, there was no question even back in the 80s that I qualified, <laughs> that I was an addict, but I didn't want to, you know, I just wanted to figure out a way to manage it. Um, so eventually I was able to go to rehab. This is when I was working at Ralph Lauren and, you know, and take myself out of my life for a, three week, four week period. And I mean, that was the single biggest gift that I was given. And, you know, and fortunately for me, I have not had to try or, you know, uh, do research as they say to, you know, figure out because I, there's no question in my mind that I'm an addict and there's no question in my mind that the only chance I have to sort of survive is to stay sober. Is there a number that you wish you could forget? So in, yeah, so 2003 was a very difficult year. I was 43. I, I moved to Miami at the end of uh, 2002 for this job, which was so heinous. So this, this, this woman that I had worked with at Calvin Klein had a, she had left Calvin as well and started her own sort of like retail consulting thing, like building out stores. And she said, she called me on the phone. It was like, I had literally gone to the bankruptcy attorney and I'm like, and it's going to cost me $1,800 when I have zero money to declare bankruptcy. Okay. 
Makes absolutely no sense. But, but right, okay. but that's what you have to do. So anyway, and literally I just come back and she picked, the phone rang and she said, listen, I know you need a job. I, I do. She said, we have a client. You're going to be perfect for it. Okay. They're opening a store. Great. In Miami. And I was like, uh, okay. In a car dealership. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> so it, it exists. It's this place called The Collection. And... Um, you well, know, your they, dad was a mechanic, right? And which I, which I did laugh with him <laughs> about, like, can you believe when we're in a fucking car dealership? Um, but it wasn't what I had, you know. Anyway, and the guy was like a raging closet case, you know, cocaine addict. Oh, what a great combination! Who was, and he was like such a dickhead. But like, but listen, I needed a job, and I'm grateful that I had it. And I was there exactly one year, and you know, it was one of those things. Like, I was taken care of. Sometimes they're the jobs you just need to do to get you over the hump. And in the middle of it, my mom died. So okay. that's what, so yeah, so in the weekend, and in fact, it was the weekend in August that there was a blackout in New York. I was going to go to New York that weekend to visit friends, and then there was a blackout, so that canceled that. And then my dad called and said, oh, your mom died. Oh. So um, What's she had been saying, Naoma. Nao spelled Naomi, but she pronounced it Naoma, and we get really upset if people called her Naomi. Naoma. Naoma. I know it's like very bizarre. Why was it pronounced that way? I have no idea. I need, well, her sister's not alive either. Okay. I need to ask my cousin, like, why? What's the number you check regularly? <laughs> I'm always intrigued by this. So, <laughs> I didn't check it before I came. Um, so I, living in New York, and also reading the paper every day um in the new york times they always had a graph of the reservoir levels in the city because when i moved to new york there was a drought and there was this whole thing about like and it went on for two summers um about water conservation and so there would be this reservoir level and it would like and it, you know it was just one of those things that i became fixated on and i still <laughs> am to this day still and i'm obsessed with the weather app like i am obsessed with weather like which weather app do you use I just use the Apple one, okay. which people always complain and say it's terrible. I think it's perfectly fine. Um, we're going to move on to some very uh, quick, quick fire okay. questions. Um, how much is in your wallet right now? 120. Oh, very precise. Um, I have 100 say, and a 20. <laughs> what's your favorite time of day? 5 a.m. Early riser. Your favorite uh, number? One. Why? <laughs> Because I'm the firstborn. <laughs> okay. How many coffees do you have a day and what's your coffee order? As many as possible. Um, iced coffee with some sort of milk. I usually choose oat, but not. I'm not picky. What age do you think you live until? Uh, I'm afraid it's going to be way longer than I can afford. Um, <laughs> Most people have the opposite answer. They're like, I hope it's not too soon. Oh, I could go tomorrow and I'd be fine. Um, <laughs> No, because I've done so many interesting things. I like it that. would be, I would be fine. I, I'm going to say 75. Oh, okay. I like that. Um, what's the number that strikes the fear of God in you? Well, <laughs> a bank balance. <laughs> this regardless of the number. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Very insightful, Nick. Very insightful. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? TV. Um, and finally, what does the world need more of? Kindness. Oh, I love that. And do you know what? Just before we finish up, um, I thought it was quite interesting that 
your life has kind of come full circle in many respects with Instagram and all that kind of pictorial uh, side of things because you were uh, pictured on the front page of the Middletown Journal in November 20th, 1962. I thought it was so cute. What are you doing in this picture? You're eating like a turkey leg. Exactly. Pull that for me there. Look at you. <laughs> Did you win some sort of award or something? No, and but this the crazy thing I is, change. I remember that. It's like I remember them taking my picture with like shit all over my hands. So my dad, it was somehow there was a photographer that was a friend of my parents or my dad's or something, and I can't remember. I asked my dad about this. I can't remember why he told me that he took these pictures and then he submitted them to. The newspaper just, I, I think it was probably like as a kind of like way for him to, you know, sort of as a calling card. And then somehow it went on a, like whatever they call it, the AP or the U, UPI or one of these like services. And so it was on the cover of many different papers around the country on Thanksgiving morning. That's brilliant. It's a brilliant picture. <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, I find it so interesting. I mean, you're, you're quite the character. Um, and I'm very excited to see what the future has in store for you because it still kind of feels like you're only just getting started. Oh God, thank you. <laughs> well, as I'm sure you can tell, Nick is a fascinating character. He's lived a fascinating life. And I feel very lucky to have managed to get some time with him because he lives a lot of his life on an airplane, as you heard. Uh, so thank you so much, Nick, for your time. And thank you for joining us. Now, if you loved this conversation as much as I did, please share your thoughts by leaving a review and star rating. It really does help the podcast grow and for other people to find us. And if you'd like to receive weekly installments of the numbers straight to your phone, hit the subscribe button now. Until next time, that's it from me. Take care and thank you for listening.